Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin tonight. Father, thank you again for the opportunity we have to study the Word of God. Thank you for giving us your inspired Word and the Spirit of God to illuminate our minds to its truth. We pray, Father, that we might uh, come to a better understanding of who, who you are, your, your mission and program in this age in the church, and our part that we have to play in that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at uh, chapters uh, 242 through 1224, the earliest days of the church at Jerusalem, 242 through 67. We notice that thesis paragraph or explanatory paragraph. We saw an example because in that thesis paragraph it said that the apostles did a lot of miracles. We saw an example of a great miracle of healing. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 26, that brought persecution, Peter and John, before the Sanhedrin, chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. We said that uh, this was mainly opposition by the Pharisees, and we said that, uh, I mean the Sadducees, I'm sorry, opposition by the Sadducees, we'll see the Pharisees tonight get into the get into the opposition, but mainly the Sadducees were behind this. They they were the majority in the Sanhedrin. And uh, so they uh, bring the apostles in. Uh, they uh, uh, Peter makes a speech before them, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter uh, says and so forth. Uh, we looked at that last week. We looked at his sermon there, uh, his second sermon after Pentecost, Peter's defense there, and uh, saying that what he was doing was not uh, apostasy, he was not turning people away from, from, from Judaism. This is really the fulfillment of Judaism because Jesus is the Messiah and so forth. And so we're actually looking at page 16 tonight here. Uh, the apostles warned and released. Um, it says uh, in verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Uh, as I say here, unschooled doesn't necessarily mean illiterate. Uh, we, we understand that among Jews, at least, literacy was pretty pretty high, fairly high, as best we can know. That wouldn't be true of you know all people in all nations or anything, but certainly among Jews, because of the study of Scripture and so forth, but they were unschooled probably more in the sense that they had no rabbinic training. They didn't have any formal training in the scripture. But it says they took note, uh, these religious leaders took note that they had uh, been associated with Jesus uh, of Nazareth. Um, they had been with Jesus. And remember uh, John seven fourteen and 15, not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and began to teach. The Jews there were amazed and said, 
How did this man get such learning without having been taught? Again, that's a reference to Jesus hadn't been to any formal rabbinic school. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a Sadducee. He didn't have any formal theological training in that sense, and his disciples didn't have any formal theological training. So the question is, how did this man, Peter, uh, make these Old Testament uh, comparisons? How did he talk about the Psalms and fulfillments? How did he... How did he know all this kind of stuff uh, without some sort of formal training with with the religious leaders? So uh, they say, uh, since they could see that the man, verse 14, who had been healed standing there uh, was with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. Verse 16, what are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. Now, it seems amazing to us that they would want to deny this sign. But remember, the the Sadducees especially were priests in the temple, aristocrats. Well, you know, the Sadducees themselves, we saw before, didn't, they, they tended to discount the miraculous they're often called theological liberals because they sort of discounted the miraculous, the resurrection, uh, things like that. But anyway, they see this Jesus as a deceiver. They want to deny this miracle, but they can't. This man had been sitting at the temple all his life since he was a young child, begging, and now he suddenly is healed. And who can deny this? These are undeniable sign miracles, uh, crediting miracles, as we have talked about before. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that he's performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to further this from spreading further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer in anyone in this name. Then they commanded them, and they they called them in again, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So Peter says this famous statement, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him, to listen to God. Should we obey you or should we obey God? Now we have a similar statement in Acts 5.39, so we might as well go ahead and look at it because it's really the same point. This is... uh, after the apostles are again brought in, here it's just it's just Peter and John brought in. But after uh, uh, in chapter five, it's all the twelve are brought in to the Sanhedrin, and they're again warned about. They're told not to speak in the name of Jesus or anything. We don't want that. And in five twenty nine, there is that famous statement that's parallel to this. Peter and the other apostles replied, "We must obey God rather than human beings." So they're told in verse 27, you know, we've given you strict orders, verse 28. We told you before, back here in chapter 4, not to speak in this man's name, and they continue to speak in this man's name, and they're brought in again, and they said, we must obey God here rather than you in this particular case. So I say here, the command to obey human government is not absolute. Um, 
there are commands in Scripture to obey human government. Remember Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, Paul says. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So Paul says, generally, we Christians, we must obey the governing authorities. The exception to that is what Peter says right here. There are times when we Christians don't obey the governing authorities uh, that Paul sets forth in Romans 13. We have to obey God rather than men. So it's not an absolute kind of thing. And the question comes is, I guess, when do we disobey our government? When is it right for Christians to... Uh, disobey the commands of of our human rulers, our human government, and so forth. What by what principle do we operate here? Um, and people have looked at this differently. The way I have generally, most people I think would say this is that um, we should only disobey our government when our government commands us to do something that is contrary to God's will, something that's sinful. So uh, as long as my government does not command me to do something that's sinful or contrary to the word of God, in other words, um, then I have to obey the human government. The government says I have to pay income tax, and even Paul says we have to pay our taxes, you know. But So I have to pay those taxes even though I may not like to pay them and so forth. One of the, one of the uh, instances this came up a number of years ago, I remember, was in the abortion situation. You remember when uh, this was really, I don't know how long ago this was, but a number of years ago when Chris, some Christians were blocking abortion clinics. Do you remember that? When they were blocking the entrance to abortion clinics? Because so a lot of Christians felt like we've got to stop this killing of these innocents, so we have to block these abortion clinics. And Christians were kind of divided about that. Should we block these doors or not? Okay, here's Bill Combs' opinion on that. <laughs> I would say we shouldn't. And I would say this because of this principle right here. In other words, what I just said. Uh, a fact that a person goes into an abortion clinic and gets an abortion is not causing me to sin. They're sinning. They're doing wrong by getting this abortion. But... That's not causing me to sin because they're doing something wrong. So I would say, I can say we, should, we can protest, you know, legally outside of clinics, and we can go to court and debate about should we be able to do that and how far we can get close. And, you know, there were all those court cases about how close you can get to an abortion clinic and that kind of thing. But I don't think we have the right for civil disobedience in that case. That's my opinion on that. Because uh, someone getting an abortion is not causing me to disobey God. I'm not disobeying God. Now, some, some would point to verses in Proverbs and say, protect the innocent, and so you're not protecting the innocent. That's sort of a general kind of thing, I think, in Proverbs. So it's tough sometimes to know when do you disobey human government? When are you allowed to? Now, if the government said, if I was a, a doctor, a medical doctor, and the government said, you must perform an abortion, then I think, yeah, you as a doctor, a medical doctor, would have to disobey that command because they would be commanding you to commit sinful action in that particular case. Uh, and even Peter said, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. 
whether to the emperor as a supreme. So the same man who said, we have to obey God rather than men, that wasn't an absolute statement. <laughs> when, he, when he himself says in his own epistles, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, as much as you can, as long as government doesn't cause you to disobey the word of God. You know, This came up recently, you remember, in that case in Kentucky about the clerk there who um, was issuing, was commanded to issue the marriage licenses to the, for the gay marriage. Remember that? The clerk in Kentucky and so forth. And she said, no, I'm not going to do that because uh, that's violating my conscience as a Christian because I don't believe gay marriage is right. And so by issuing this license, I'm giving an approval to this kind of thing. That's a tougher case there, isn't it, about whether she should do that or not do that, you know. I could make a case she could, but you can make a case she could. You want to hear my case that she could? <laughs> okay. Here's my case that she could. I would say maybe she could because, if I argued this way, she's a clerk. And really all she's doing as a clerk is checking people's paperwork. Here a person applies for a marriage license. The law says they can have a marriage license. She's just saying, okay, your paperwork is okay, you can get married. The authority for the gay marriage is the government. You know, the government is... is so I can make a case. Now, she saw her role as greater than that. She saw her role, I think, as giving her authority. So it's a, it's a difficult... And, and actually, according to civil rights law, she sort of had that right. The civil rights law, you know, is pretty clear that if you have a religious objection then your employer has to sort of honor that religious objection. For instance, if you work for an employer and you've worked there for 10 years and they say, okay, you've got to work on Sunday, you could actually object to that. And they should make accommodation for you technically. Now, you can't. And that has to be decided individually by the courts, as I've read the stuff on this, the courts. It would be wrong for a Christian to take a job that you know you're going to work on Sunday take the job, then complain afterward, the fact like that. So these are tough issues. But we get the general principle, I think, here, that the principle, the biblical principle is I can disobey the government if the government commands me to do something that's contrary to the will of God, something that would cause me to sin and disobey God. But sometimes in the individual situations, like the clerk in Kentucky, it's a, sometimes it can be hard to know exactly what's going on. Yes? I've often wondered... Uh, how the American Revolution would fit into this. I yeah. Mean, that is a lot of rich uh, merchants that didn't like what the government was doing. Yeah. Like John Henry was one of the largest smugglers, or John Hancock, yeah. one of the largest smugglers ever was. Yeah. But I, it, I was wondering, like, would I have to have been a Tory if I found that? Yeah, I know what it is. It is tough. And I've asked a lot of church history professors about that too, you know. And they will often say that there was cause. They will, uh, they will say there was cause because the government wasn't fulfilling its responsibilities as the government they make a case for. But it is a tough case. It is a tough case, don't you think, to to promote rebellion in that kind of situation? So, well, whether they were right or wrong, we're here and we're thankful in God's providence. We're we're here. Yes. Maybe for discussion on another time. But the yeah. case in Kentucky. 
they put her in jail because she refused to do that. Yeah. And I wondered if she was a Muslim that refused to do yeah, that, yeah. how quickly would they change yeah, sure. the law and say, okay, yeah. we'll do it this way for you. I, yeah, I most, wonder, people, most people would say, what, what, what was the point of putting her in jail? You well, know? yeah, I didn't, I didn't quite yeah. understand that, and I wondered if, you're, if you object yeah. to it so strenuously, then you can leave that job and find another, but I just because so often Christians are yeah, they're the, they're the one group that can be persecuted. Or a little yeah. bit or whatever. Yeah, I just they, they're the one group that can. Who no. everybody wants to embrace anymore, would they have changed it? And I yeah. Think they yeah, they might have done. Who knows? So, uh, Peter says, uh, as for us, verse 20, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Verse 21, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So he had been there for many years at the temple gate. This leads to this uh, the church's praise and petition. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said... So this situation of God's deliverance led them to praise God, uh, and they're driven to an emphasis on the sovereignty of God. You know, when we see God working in these situations, we know God is in control. Uh, and they, they, in times of trouble, it's, it's always important to reflect upon God is in control. All things are working together for good. We might not realize that. We can't understand what the good is, but... Uh, Peter says this is exactly what we realize. When they heard this, they raised their voices. Sovereign Lord, Lord, you made the heavens and the earth. You spoke by the mouth of the Holy Spirit through your prophet, through, uh, through your servant, the, our father David, as he said, remember in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth raise, rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did, but notice this, here's God's sovereign control. They did, these human beings did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Remember, there is the sovereign will of God. God is in control of all things. So God sovereignly had planned that Jesus would die on the cross for the sins of the world, but still, it was at the hands of wicked people, as we notice, remember, in Acts 2. So they're seeing this persecution of them. It's terrible, it's bad, but still God is ultimately in control. It's his sovereign will here. Now, Lord, consider their threats and en- enable your servants to speak your, wa- your, your, your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hands to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So it's interesting that you know, like most of us, I would too, you know. We would be praying, I think, uh, God, help this not happen to me again. <laughs> Thank you for deliverance, but I hope I don't get arrested again. But notice, they pray, Lord, enable your servants to speak your word, your word with great boldness. So they were praying, you know, God, we were arrested, we were, were being persecuted, but we want to continue to... The mission. We want the mission to be foremost. That is of the gospel, <laughs> spreading the gospel, even if that means more persecution, which it will mean 
as we'll see in just a few verses here. So they prayed, verse 31, and the place where they were praying was shaken, the meeting place, and they were filled with the, all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Well, we see now uh, the Christians' concern expressed in sharing, 432 through 511. Again, this is an illustration of that thesis paragraph. All the believers were in one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. So I say this is an illustration of that thesis statement in 244-45. But again, this is not coercive legislation. This is not communism or Marxism. With Marxism, the government demands that you give up your possessions and give them to the government, and we'll distribute as we want to. This was voluntary, remember, because it says right here, um, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection, and God's grace was powerful, verse 34, so that there was no needy persons among them from time to time. Notice verse 34. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. It's not that everybody sold everything or the government confiscated everything. From time to time, those who owned land or possessions sold them, brought the money from the sale, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So this was not uh, coercive. This was voluntary. Well, we see an example of this generosity from Barnabas. Uh, the generosity of Barnabas in verses 36 and 37. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles call Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So here's an illustration of what we just read in 34 and 35. No needy person, time to time someone sold land or house. Here's Joseph or Barnabas as we know him. His name means son of encouragement. Remember in, in the Hebrew idea, son of means one who has the characteristics of. So son of God, in Semitic thinking, Hebrew thinking, is one who has the characteristics of God. Son of encouragement here. This is Barnabas, son of encouragement, which means one who has the characteristics of encouraging people. That was his what his character noted. As I mentioned, he was the cousin of John or Mark. Um, Colossians 4.10, and he's put forth as an example. And that sets the stage for what happens next. So we're setting the stage for Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas is a man of, of good character, a encouraging person. He does this out of a genuine heart for the needs of other people. He sells this field he owns, brings the money to the apostles so they can distribute to those who have needs. That brings us to the deceit of Ananias and Sapphira, 5, 1 through 11. As I mentioned here in the notes, perhaps they noted the esteem in which the church held Barnabas and they desired similar recognition. Because it says, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With, this, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So what we see as the account goes on, if you remember, is they seem to be doing this because they want the acclaim of the church. 
you can imagine when Barnabas did this, a lot of people are saying, Barnabas is a wonderful guy. You know, he's a great guy. He's, man, he's a great Christian, isn't he? He sold this field and gave this money to people in need. This is Barnabas's. And so, you, you know, I'm sure a lot of people were, were praising Barnabas. And, you know, the natural, our natural depravity is we want a little praise ourselves. You know, I wouldn't mind having some of that. I want my fellow Christians to think good of me. And who doesn't enjoy, you know, being, having good things said about them? No one enjoys having bad things said. We want people to say good things about us. And so it's easy to crave that. And apparently here, this is what Ananias and Sapphira did. And so they sold this field and uh, they sold this property. And they kept back part of the money for themselves. Now, as we learned later and as we've looked at before, remember remember what happened here. They sold this property for $10,000. You have to read between the lines to get that exact figure. But it was $10,000. But they said they sold it for $5,000. And they took the $5,000 and brought it to the apostles and said, We sold this property for $5,000. And we're giving it every bit of it. Man, we're not keeping a bit of it for ourselves. We're just, we're just giving the whole 5,000. But the truth was, they really sold it for 10,000, but they wanted the credit for giving the full price to this cause. And so it says, with his wife's full knowledge, they kept back part of the money. Many people have noted that this is the same word in Joshua 7-1 of the sin of Achan. Remember when the, Israelites uh, conquered Jericho and the Lord said don't take any of those silver and gold religious objects and all that probably these idols and stuff don't take any of that for yourself you can take the other possessions but you can't take these these idol things silver and gold that goes to the temple treasury to the Lord's to the treasury for the Lord and tabernacle and uh, Achan saw it, remember, he got it, he grabbed back and he buried some in his tent, you remember? And then Israel goes up to Ai and they get defeated. What happened? You know, we were supposed to be invincible. And they find out, the Lord says, hey, listen, you disobeyed my orders at Jericho. And so Achan admits his sin. He kept it back. So people think maybe Luke is drawing a parallel here to the sin of Achan. Remember, when Israel, when Israel came into the land, the first place they defeated was Jericho. And now as we begin the, the beginning of Israel's conquest, now we, we see the, the beginning of, of uh, the church's mission. We have the same sort of problem here, a sin of holding back in that particular sense. So we find out what happened in verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. And here's how we know what's going on. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? That is, you sold it for 10000 Okay, it belonged to you. After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? You sold it for 10000 There was nothing compelling you to give any to the church, any to the people, or anything... What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. So the problem was the lie, the deception, saying that they had given it all so they could get the praise, you know, 
but saying, let's just keep back part of it. We can still get a lot of praise. If we give 5000 and say we gave you the total price, people will still think we're great. We'll get a lot of praise, and uh, that's what they did. Now, we don't know how Peter knew about this. They come, you know, Peter says, after he brings the money, how has Satan filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept back? What, 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 how does he know this? We don't know. Did God reveal this to him supernaturally? I don't know. The text doesn't say, does it? Or did, did somebody tell him, you know, or I don't know how this happened here, but somehow Peter found out. And this is a common text that's used in verses 3 and 4 to talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember this verse here? Because in verse 3, Peter says, You have lied to the Holy Spirit. And in verse 4, Peter says, You have not lied just to human beings, but you've lied not to the Holy Spirit, but to God. So this is often a text that's used to show that Peter understands the Holy Spirit to also be God. You've lied to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. An important text in that sense. Well, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Amazing. And great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Can you imagine? That would be fearful. You know? <laughs> Somebody tells a lie and they fall down dead in church. We say, man, let me out of here, you know? <laughs> then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, buried him. Three hours later, his wife comes in, not knowing what happened, verse 7. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yeah, that's the price. We got 10000 We got 5000 and we gave him the 5000 But Peter knows it was really 10000 Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men carried, the young men came in. Finding her dead, carried her out and buried her alongside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who were about, who heard about those events. You can imagine. Is God going to punish every sin like this? No, fortunately he doesn't, does he? But it's a great demonstration of how God views sinful activity, isn't it? And, of course, it helped the church kind of purify the church there. You're not going to have a lot of half-hearted people coming in, are you? Trying to make a show or make a display or something. I ask the question here, were Ananias and Sapphira Christians, that is, genuine Christians, or were they just pretenders? You know, they're, sometimes in the book of Acts, as we'll see, some people are described as believers who are apparently not really believers. When we get up to Samaria, and uh, we'll see Philip up there, and we'll see an evidence of that. Somebody who seems to be described as a Simon the Sorcerer, who seems to be described as a believer, but I think probably is not a believer. So Luke often just describes people by their profession of faith. And obviously Ananias and Sapphira professed to be Christians. And so the question is, were they real Christians or were they not? As you can see, I, I think they were. Uh, why do I say that? Well, I think the account Suggested. Now, this is not conclusive right here. It just says, all the believers were in one heart and one mind. So at least initially, Luke is putting them among the believers. I don't think that's definitive right there, as I just said. That's just descriptive. I say, secondly, 
Satan can influence saved people. Because you might say, okay, Peter says here that you have lied to the Holy Spirit, and he says, Satan has filled your heart. So you could think, well, that's really an unsaved person, and it might be, but we know that Satan can influence saved people. Like in the Old Testament, remember in the case of David who was... Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Remember, God was very upset about that, that David did this. But it says David was influenced, and certainly David was a Christian. He was a believer, a man after God's own. You know, we know he's a believer. But he was incited by Satan, influenced by Satan, right, to do this sinful thing, Chronicle says. Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual. So we know that Satan is working to influence us. Most of the times we make the distinction that believers cannot be, cannot be inhabited by Satan, cannot be possessed by demons, demon possession, but we usually say believers can be influenced by Satan or his demons. You know, we can certainly be influenced. Satan has thousands and thousands of demons who are working to thwart God's plan and influence believers. So, so it could be that Satan could influence. So when he says Satan has filled your heart, it could be that we're talking about an influence on saved people. I say number three, physical death is a discipline applied to some Christians. We know that this is unusual. This doesn't happen every time somebody lies in the book of Acts, obviously, or hereafter. Thank God for that, right? So, But we know that sometimes uh, when Christians are disobedient to a certain extent, God does discipline them. You know, Peter, uh, Paul talks about this in, in um, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty when he says, that's why many of you are weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep. Remember, this is a, a misuse of the Lord's Supper. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Uh, there's, a, there's a problem with the way the Lord's Supper is being conducted in Corinth. And Paul says, the, because of how you're misusing and misunderstanding the Lord's Supper, this is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. You've died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not... Come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be. Uh, my sister's calling me. <laughs> she calls the most inopportune times. <laughs> She's not in church tonight. You can tell that. Right? Maybe you should have taken the call. <laughs> One time, uh, Ken always talks about this. Pastor Ken talked about. I forgot what it was. We, uh, Dr. McCabe and I were out on visitation on Wednesday night at Inner City, you know. So we're out. We go make these calls, you know. And for some reason, we decided to call Ken. And he's Wednesday night here teaching. One of the, you know, he's teaching not here, but he's a, so we call, you know, and he puts us on the speakerphone. We're at Starbucks after the visitation. I remember that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> this is my sister calling me here, you know. <laughs> so he never let us forget that. So, um, so the point is, God does sometimes chasten Christians to the point of even physical death. 
thank goodness, we, you know, he, he doesn't do it the first time we do something. But sometimes when Christians are very disobedient, they are not repentant, they continue to disobey God. Sometimes God does that, we know. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes, some God, sometimes God lets Christians go for years and years and years. I'm just thinking about a case right now of a man I know who was for was a deacon in a church and he got away from the Lord, left the Lord, divorced his wife, all kinds of stuff. He was he was away from the Lord for ten years at least. And we used to talk about this fellow. Is this guy was he really ever saved or not saved? And now he seems to have come back. He seems to be very repentant. He seems to be acting like a Christian. He's very genuine. So sometimes God lets people go for a long time. You know, we just like God's very long suffering. And then sometimes it doesn't. Just we don't know how God is going to work in a certain situation. So I was just arguing here that that is a, this, a physical death is a discipline. Then for lying to the Holy Spirit, I think maybe is more easily understood of Christians indwelt by the Holy Spirit than of unbelievers. Maybe. So, um, I mean, we don't think of unbelievers lying to the Holy Spirit. At least, you don't really think of that. They're not indwelt by the Spirit. So, I, I, my general tendency is to think that they were Christians here, but and to say that this was, God was giving an example here. He was setting the stage. We're the beginning of the church. And just like God punished Achan in the Old Testament at the beginning of the conquest to get, teach Israel a lesson, He's teaching the church a lesson here. He takes disobedience very seriously. Very, very seriously. And Ananias and Sapphira give an example of what God thinks about sin. Well, then we see... uh, You know, uh, Cliff Wilson has an expression for how Satan influences people. The devil made me do it? Yeah. (laughs) These people don't know who Flip Wilson is. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of us do. A lot of us do? Okay. Does Ken, do you, do you know who Flip yeah. Oh, okay. But you younger folks, you don't know. You don't, yeah, you don't. You, don't. you know who it is? Okay. You don't want to tell because you, you're telling your age here if you, you know who Flip Wilson is. You know? <laughs> yeah. So we're looking at the apostles again before the Sanhedrin here. 5, 12 through 42. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. I have another note here about, uh, you know, their meeting in Solomon's colonnade. We talked about that porch there, Solomon's porch and so forth. I ha- I've mentioned this before, but I had a note, another note here about miracles because we've seen these miracles it says perform many signs and wonders. Uh, remember the Acts uses those terms, signs, wonders, and miracles. And I said those are rather synonymous terms. They're three different Greek terms, sign, wonders, and miracles. They're just synonymous. They're, they're, they mean roughly the same thing. But I mentioned here B.B. Warfield's famous book on counterfeit miracles. He says, miracles do not appear on the pages of Scripture vagrantly, here, there, and elsewhere indifferently, without assignable reason. They belong to revelation periods. So we see miracles often when God is giving revelation. Moses comes along and Moses does these miracles. 
And Moses is the writer of the Pentateuch. God's giving revelation to Moses. And he's accrediting Moses, right? By these miracles that he does. We don't really see a lot of miracles then, you know, until we see Elijah. Remember in Elisha, God is using them, prophets, and so forth. Jesus comes on the scene. The apostles come on the scene. So he says, they just don't appear everywhere throughout the New Test- throughout the Old Testament. They appear generally, as he says, they belong to revelation periods and appear only when God is speaking to his people through accredited messengers, declaring his gracious purposes. Their abundant display in the apostolic church is the mark of the richness of the apostolic age in revelation. And when this revelation period closed, that is, the New Testament was finished being written, say about A.D. 90, maybe, you know, the book of Revelation is the last book. When this revelation period closed, the period of miracle working had passed by also as a matter of course. And if you read the church fathers, we mean the early church writers who write in the year 120, 130, 150, 170, 200, 220, 250. They don't know anything about miracles. In the year 300, they look back at these miracles just like we do. They didn't they didn't see those miracles in the year 150 or the year 200 or the year 250 or the year 300. They they passed because the apostles died. Revelation in the New Testament was given. So that was the purpose of miracles. I remember Acts 2.22, we looked at before. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God. How? By miracles, wonders, and signs. Remember, we looked at that verse in 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul's apostleship. I persevered in demonstrating among you. Remember in 2 Corinthians 10-12 through 12 especially, Paul is defending his apostleship. People are questioning his apostolic authority. And Paul said, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle. What are the marks? They're not the marks of the average Christian like Bill Combs. They're the marks of the true apostle. Signs, wonders, and miracles. So miracles don't just happen every day, and they shouldn't happen every day. That's not the purpose for miracles in that sense. They're extraordinary. They're unusual. We wish God would miraculously heal us or our loved ones, but he doesn't do it all the time. They're unusual. They're very rare that that happens. So the apostles performed many signs and wonders. Verse 13, no one else dared join them. Well, after the Ananias and Sapphira incident, right? (laughs) No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Now, that's not absolute. Because it says right in verse 14, Nevertheless, more and more people, men and women, believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So what verse 13 means, as I say here, is no pretenders, no half-hearted followers. You're not going to join a group like this when you see what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. If you're going to join this group, you've got to be serious. You've got to mean it. You've got to believe it to join them. As a result, verse 15 People brought their sick to the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. Crowds gathered from among the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. So tremendous miracles, the purpose of which was was to accredit 
this message, the gospel that these apostles were preaching. Well, that brings us to the arrest and trial of the apostles. Now we have the first arrest of Peter and John. When the high, now we have the apostles. When the high priest, verse 17, and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. So they were very jealous. You know, we can think of reasons why they might be jealous. Uh, the people were following these apostles. They're going to lose their place of prominence. Uh, this, this, the message is spreading, and they're gathering followers. The Sadducees want the Jewish people to follow them. So you can see how they could be jealous. They feared losing their authority. Their, their previous order had been disregarded. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened. Now, this is all 12. They arrested the apostles. So that's all 12. Uh, and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the door of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told, and began to preach to the people. When the high priest, verse 21, and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. So here we now have the full Sanhedrin meeting. As I say, this definitely includes the Pharisees whose presence at the first trial is not certain. The first trial, it just mentions the Sadducees. It doesn't mention the Pharisees, but the Pharisees were in the Sanhedrin, remember, but they were a minority there. The Sadducees were the main group. So uh, on arriving, verse 22, at the jail, the officers did not find them. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. And when we opened it, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard, remember he's second in command to the high priest, used it's his son in this case, head of the Levitical police force. He's, he's, he's in charge of these soldiers. He's in charge of this jail. And the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Well, you can imagine. I mean, what would you conclude? You put these people in jail, you come back and they're not there. They got some inside help, right? What else could be the answer? I mean, we're in, we got some big trouble here because we put our own people, the Levitical police force, put these people in jail. We come back, they're not there. We've got some traitors in the camp. How else could they have gotten free? They don't, they don't believe that there's been any miracle here or anything like that, the angel of the Lord. So they were wondering, what is going to happen here? We're kind of in big trouble here. We're at a loss. What, what's going to happen? Verse 25. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the temple, the captain, went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. So they, they know these men are very popular now. The apostles were brought in in verse and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Verse 28, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. 
Yet you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. So they got a twofold complaint here. One, uh, the Sanhedrin's order has been ignored. Remember, chapter 4, verse 18, Peter and John were warned. They commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Don't speak in his name. So they've got a complaint here. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, and you have disobeyed our orders. And secondly, they're upset because we're being blamed for the death of Jesus. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. So they're saying that Jesus was crucified by the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, and he was. And so they don't like this being blamed for his death. But that's really a that's, that's a little too late. Remember Matthew chapter 27? But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barnabas, a Barabbas, and to have Jesus executed. Remember, this is Pilate. Pilate, the, the custom was to release somebody on the feast day. Which of you two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor, Pilate to say. Barabbas, they said. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they all they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. But now they're trying to say, hey, we didn't, that wasn't us, man. We didn't have anything to do with that. Don't, don't blame us for this man's death. We don't, want, we don't want the people mad at us and so forth. So they feared this and they're trying to get away from this charge that they have had responsibility for this. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. So here's that second instance of that. That's why we have disobeyed your orders. God gave us the command, the commission. We have to obey that commission. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. This is literally the word tree, cross. As I say, that's the ultimate disgrace. Remember Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, it says... If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, that's that same word tree, uh, you know, a carved, carved tree, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole or the tree. Be sure to bury it that same day. So anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. Anyone's hung on a tree, hung out there, is under a curse. That's a sign of condemnation, capital punishment. And so uh, Peter says, you hanged him on a cross or on a tree. But God, notice verse 31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. I just had a note here about the fact that Sometimes the Bible speaks about faith, believing the gospel, 
And sometimes the Bible talks about obeying the gospel. Those are not two different ideas. They're just, just a different way of expressing. Belief or faith, as I say, contains an element of obedience. So when you look at some verses like Romans 6, 17, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. So Paul can talk about coming to faith or coming to Christ. You were slaves to sin. Now you are come to God as obedience. 2 Thessalonians 1.8. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. You could put in there, believe the gospel. It's really the same idea. We're obeying the gospel. We're believing the gospel. 1 Peter 4 said, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That is, don't believe it, the gospel of God. And so that's what we have here. God has given the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. It doesn't mean God only gives the Holy Spirit to to Christians who obey him. That is, to Christians who, you know, people who become Christians and then obey him, he gives the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's talking about. He gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey the gospel, who believe the gospel, is my point here. Well, we come here finally uh, tonight to uh, Gamaliel and so forth. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious, wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. So this is uh, this is uh, Gamaliel, and he is a Pharisee. And I talk about the Pharisees. This is the major rival party to the Sadducees. So these are all Jews, remember, but they interpret things a little differently, interpret the Old Testament differently. The name of the Pharisees literally means separated ones. Their roots go back to the movement sometimes called the Hasidim, who were with the Maccabees, opposed attempts to introduce Hellenism into Jewish culture in the 2nd century B.C. Let me just mention a little background on that. Remember, if you remember the Old Testament, you remember those world empires uh, like the Persian Empire, uh, Cyrus, and so forth. After that empire was the empire of Alexander the Great, beginning in the 4th century B.C. And Alexander conquered, you might say, the Mediterranean world, the known, the, the known world there, not really, not the Asia and all that, but right to India and so forth. So uh, Alexander conquered Jewish territory, Palestine, Israel, and so forth. That came under Alexander's control. And after his death, his his land was divided up principally among four parts, sometimes called as four generals. And these people wanted to spread, in all the land they conquered, Greek ideas, Greek philosophy, Greek culture. We called that Hellenism. Remember we said the word Hellene means Greek. So the idea was there was a determined movement to spread Greek culture, Greek ideas, Greek religion, and so forth, and impose that upon the peoples. Now, in different parts of the empire, that was stronger than other places. Especially in Israel, it was very strong. They were ruled by some people called the Seleucids or the Syrians. And there's a whole history there of trying to 
uh, get the Jews to buckle under. They tried to, they outlawed circumcision, they burned copies of the law, they did a lot of things to force the Jews to give up their religion and turn to a more Greek religious way of life. And some Jews rebelled against there. We usually call these, these Jews the Maccabees. They were led by a particular family in the 2nd century, the 150s, 160s, 7. And they revolted. And uh, during that time, during that Maccabean, during that revolt, there were, some, there were these pious Jews who, who sided with that family. Sometimes they're called the Hasidim, the separated ones, the pious ones. So there were these Jews who wanted to get, who wanted to throw off these Hellenistic influences, get back to the Old Testament. They sided with the, this Maccabees and their followers. They threw off, ultimately, they threw off these Greek oppressors. They established a kingdom there, a Jewish kingdom. The Romans even recognized these, this Jewish kind of kingdom and so forth. Um, and it was during that period that these Pharisees and Sadducees developed, at least according to Josephus, the Jewish historian. They go back to this time. And the Pharisees are usually associated with this separated ones, this conservative group that's, that stood with these, mess, with these uh, Maccabees. And so I say here, the Pharisees were mostly laymen who came from all walks of life. So you could be anything. You could have any profession that you might have. Paul was a leather worker of some kind, tent maker, leather worker. So you might have anything. Now that's true of Judaism today. Many times, rabbis, especially not so much today, they're full-time rabbis, but uh, throughout the Middle Ages, rabbis had professions and so forth. Uh, so they looked for a messianic age and a personal messiah held to the resurrection of the dead, believed in the presence and activity of angels and demons and the authority of the oral law or halakha. We talked about that, remember? They said that when Moses gave the Ten Commandments and the law at Mount Sinai, he also gave the right interpretation of it orally, and that's passed along. Um, so they were a minority, as I've said in the Sanhedrin, but they were quite powerful. They were fundamentally legalist. We think of them as very legalistic who tried to reduce life to a system of rules that covered every receivable circumstance. And this is the party that survived. Remember I said the Sadducees didn't survive the destruction of the temple, as far as we know. We don't have any documents, written documents, that we can say, these are Sadducean documents. They must have written documents. We don't have any documents. We are, all the documents we have are from the branch of the Pharisees. So rabbinic Judaism of the Middle Ages is really the Pharisees' religion. And that's the descendant, that's the religion we have today. Gamaliel, as I say here, according to some sources, he was a leader of the school of Hillel. That's one of the Pharisaic schools. And either the son or grandson of Hillel and the most famous rabbi of his day. Now we know that Paul actually studied under him. Remember Acts 22.3. Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. So Paul actually studied under this particular man who was a leader of this particular school of the Pharisees, the school of Hillel here. And you'll see that name all around. If you look on the internet, some look up Hillel. There's the Hillel school. There are places in Detroit called Hillel and so forth. 
that's a school of interpretation, and that name still is used today. Well, we've gone over our time here. Let's stop for tonight, and we'll try to pick up here and review next time. Thank you very much.